0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly look at what's going on with COVID. So things are hotting up. Announced just this morning, we're recording on Friday the 2nd of October, Donald Trump has confirmed that he's tested positive for the virus what that means is yet to unfold. But in this pod, we can tell you more about testing. And John Deeks is back with an update now that we have these new antigen tests which are rolling out. We also have a second returnee, Paul who's who was on before lamenting research waste in COVID and pointing out that we're totally focused on drugs and vaccines. That's something he's uh, got a new collaboration to try and change. So we'll hear from Paul about that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in the podcast today I'm joined by Helen MacDonald. Hi, Helen.
1: Hi, Duncan. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ and former GP.
0: And former GP. And we usually have Carl too, but he's bowed out of this recording. Who'd have thought that um, being a GP is going to be very quiet without him, isn't it? I know it will be. Um, Yeah, apparently uh, now the universities are back, uh, he's very, very busy. I'm kind of not surprised, really. It might be a little bit more quiet without him, um, but we're still going to have quite a lot of forthright opinion. So, uh, yeah, rants ahoy, don't worry. So, Helen, as I said, we are talking to John Deeks, and this came out of your testing obsession, which I thought we'd managed to wean you off. Uh, why was it that you decided <laughs> to go back, revisit?
1: No, it continues. My testing obsession continues. And it felt like a good time to talk with John again, who for people who didn't hear him uh, on either of the, I think we've had him on two or possibly three times now, um, previous podcasts. He is still a professor of biostatistics at Birmingham University, but he's also the chair of the Royal Statistical Society's working group on the evaluation of diagnostic tests, which is something which seems to have been spurred on a bit by um, coronavirus. And I think my obsession and maybe John's obsession with testing in, in coronavirus has expanded. We've talked with him previously quite a lot about antibody tests uh, and particularly heard about the challenges of generating good evidence in that area. Um, the themes being, I think, that there are just so many tests available, hundreds um we don't have a very strong regulatory system and those two things are feeding poor evidence generation perhaps wasted evidence generation and a general poor understanding of the type of evidence that we need um testing Large numbers of people, testing people that actually have uh, symptoms or the people that you want to do the test on, using gold standards, all, all of these types of things. So,
0: I think he described it as a wild west,
1: didn't he? He did. I don't know if I put those words in his mouth actually at some point. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, such a cautious, he's such a cautious man normally. <laughs> I'm not sure that I, I, I do remember him saying that though now. Um, anyway, this time I wanted us to focus on some tests that you may have been hearing about a bit more in the news recently There's some of the have i got it now tests as opposed to the have i had it in the past tests Um, so the tests that we see used in the test and trace systems and also this interest in the faster point of care tests um, and some listeners may have seen that one of those tests was recently approved by who for use in healthcare workers in lower resource settings. Mm. But even in higher resource settings, um, it seems like there is quite a lot of interest in these uh, point of care or faster tests uh, for a number of reasons. One, I think, is that they may well be more practical and palatable. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the swab tests be done, Dunk, but they're not very nice.
0: I've seen it <laughs> and I dread having to go and do that one day. Well, it's deeply unpleasant.
1: Yes, my partner had to take our children to have them done. And all I can say was that we are lucky that they are still open to bribery uh, <laughs> by things like sweets because it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, so maybe they're they're nicer to have done these pregnancy style tests and um, useful, I think, as well to to more quickly identify people um who either may or may not be infected and either isolate them or reassure them in a matter of minutes or hours rather than hours or days or perhaps weeks if your test and trace systems are not working particularly Mm -hmm. well and i think these tests are not only going to be of interest to healthcare um, workers and to um, services but also more broadly uh, there's interest In these types of tests in society, where we need convenient tests to try and quickly exclude um, and decide whether people can come or go from certain situations, so we've heard about interest in using these tests to decide if you can go to work or if you can go to a sports event or a music event or a, a leisure. Venue. We've heard so much in the news about measures to support the hospitality industry, but tests like these could really make a difference to um, to live music and theatre and art and sport if they work.
2: (laughs) If they work, and that
1: is what I wanted to talk uh, to John about. So perhaps we should pause and listen to what he had to say.
2: Antigen tests or molecular tests are detecting the presence of the virus. In the person at this point in time. So, there are the have I got it tests. So, we've um, been using this uh, RT PCR test, the laboratory test, um, routinely all the way through COVID, which is, if you like, our gold standard test for um, finding out whether or not a person has the virus. It detects live and dead virus. can't tell the difference between somebody having a current infection and having past infection. But when we use this test in people who have symptoms or we know they've been recently exposed, so people who've um, been picked up through track and trace, uh, a positive result from the PCR test is is very clear that this person is highly likely to have COVID. A negative result may have missed COVID because um, the swabbing technique which gets used doesn't always pick up viral matter when it's present in a person. So that's our our biggest um, problem with this test is it it misses virus because of the swab. Now we've got a new set of tests which have been discussed about for the last uh, few weeks, um, these point of care antigen tests. And this started back in the beginning of August when the government had told us about this DNA nudge test and since then, we heard about the moonshot proposals, which were very idealistic ideas about we could have tests which don't actually exist, which would be antigen tests. Um, and then this week, we've heard from the WHO that they've approved a, an antigen test, a point-of-care antigen test, uh, for use um, uh, primarily in lower and income countries, the SD biosensor test, which is also being purchased by, by um, many other countries as well.
1: And what's the key attraction of the point of care test?
2: So, the problem with um, the RT PCR test is you have to have a sample taken, it has to be sent to a laboratory, which may be many miles away, um, and you have to wait for the results to come back, and the whole process can take several days. The point of care test can give a result within hours or even minutes, and it doesn't have to go anywhere. So, the whole um, Point of point of care tests is that the result is given to the patient within the same healthcare visit. They don't need to um, go somewhere else with the sample, post it, or anything like that. So um, it's much faster and it's much more convenient. So some of these tests are are ones which um, we describe them as, as um, you could do them under a tree which is the ones which are perfect for use in low and middle income countries. You don't need electricity. You don't need water. You don't need any laboratory facilities. So they're um, a strip type test, Um, a bit like some of the antibody tests, like a pregnancy test. Other ones need a small desktop machine, um, very expensive machine. And these are things like the DNA nudge test. So um, they can probably be done uh, in a small room. They don't need laboratories, but they need a clear piece of space and a stable electricity supply uh, t- to work
1: and what do we know so far about how good these well this group of tests is in general or uh, whether specific ones are particularly good or bad
2: well it's early days with these tests um, so for most of them we've got um, one or only a very small number of studies actually for most of them we have no studies to be honest but things like DNA nudge uh, the DNA nudge test has been evaluated in a uh, study which was published a couple of weeks ago, been available in preprint for longer, which showed actually it works pretty well. Its sensitivity and specificity are in the 90s and high 90s percent. So it is a test which, um, you know, will work well. The problem with that test is its capacity, that it can only do a, a small number of tests, maybe 12, 15 a day because it does one sample at a time and it takes 90 minutes. Uh, It also um, detects whether or not the sample is adequate for uh, testing. So I think the study showed about one in 10 samples comes back saying this was an inadequate sample and a new swap would need to be taken. uh, So another lot of 90 minutes. Uh, really and is that the only,
1: only one that's sort of worth doing or, or are there well, other a, ones that are looking hopeful as well?
2: There's a similar test. These are molecular tests, the, the, the DNA nudge test. There's another one, the expert express test, which we haven't heard about in the UK, but it's, it's a US test. Expert have a whole range of uh, molecular tests for TB and other diseases. So they've produced a version of their test, which, again, needs a desktop machine uh, to run. Uh, and that's very similar. The data we've seen are very similar on that uh, as for DNA nudge, But the study quality has actually been quite poor on, on those tests. So lots of these early studies we're seeing for these tests are, are, are not recruiting um, in clinical practice. They're, they're taking remnant samples from laboratories to see mm-hmm. how well they work as a sort of first stage study. So we're waiting to see some better studies on, on those. And I've
1: seen tests. you getting a bit cross, John, about... Um the types of studies that are being done, whether they're analytical studies, uh, or done in real life?
2: Well, this is an ongoing issue. I've been talking about this um, probably since March. Sorry, I obviously missed that. <laughs> well, people don't understand it, so it's really important that we talk about it. The, the sensitivity values we see, and these are quite often the values the company quotes, but, but we see um, uh, some people, some laboratory scientists are quoting them as well, are what we call analytical sensitivity. So they're telling us, they, they, they start with their study with a set of swabs they know have virus in them, and they work out how well is their test going to work at saying these swabs have virus in them. What we actually need are starting with a set of people who have virus in them and include the swab stage in the evaluation because that's actually how we make a diagnosis. And it includes this error rate that we get from the poor swabbing. It's what we call either diagnostic sensitivity or, or clinical sensitivity. It's, it's the real, um, real world experience of using these tests. Mm-hmm. So all too often we're hearing people say that the uh, PCR test Still has 99% sensitivity. Well, it probably does as an analytical sensitivity, but it doesn't when you factor in the process of actually testing a patient, which is all important in making sure uh, we draw the right conclusions.
1: And when we're thinking about real life, we've talked a bit about using um, these tests in a healthcare setting, perhaps um, in lower resource settings, Um, but there's other, there's other real life stuff going on there that's really difficult at the moment a lot of industries for example um live music sporting industries that want to be able to have essentially people gather at large events and i guess there's quite a lot of hope riding on tests like this that might be able to tell you as you enter somewhere somewhere are you healthy? And similarly, there are workplaces where people are gathered. Um, and I guess employers would like to be able to test some of their employees and say, oh, you're COVID free today. You can come in or you, you should go home. How, how do you see these helping beyond healthcare in broader society?
2: So this is all part of the, the moonshot discussion we've been uh, through for the last few weeks. So the, these tests, because um, the PCR test amplifies The virus. It goes through several stages of creating more and more replicates until something can be detected. So it's actually very good at detecting very low levels of virus. These new tests don't have this amplification stage in, and they actually can't detect the same low levels of virus as the PCR test does. So the big question we've got is does that matter? Um, The time when it would matter is actually when somebody's just been infected, because the levels of virus you have go up during those first few days. And it's possible that these new tests will not pick up somebody who is about to become infectious, who's just been exposed, whereas the PCR tests would do. So this is the big disadvantage. And this is sort of behind the idea that we'd use these tests and would keep on using them every couple of days. Is the only way we'd work with these tests is if you kept on using them, because you'll miss the people who have just been infected, um, uh, so they could well be becoming infectious. Uh, and we really don't know how, you know, this is something we have very little grasp of because how much virus you get in the test also depends on the swabbing technique. So it's not like we have a very good measure of how much virus we have. So there's a bit of concern that these tests, they'll be fine in t- when somebody's sitting there with symptoms but they might not be so fine in testing asymptomatic people picking up. And is tests. anyone
1: starting to generate evidence in those types of people, either out in the community or in, in asymptomatic people? Is any evidence coming?
2: I haven't seen it yet. We're a bit far, uh, we're not that far down the path with these tests. You have to remember they've, they're only just coming through. So the first studies we're seeing are in those healthcare settings with, with uh, people who've got symptoms. I hope we will see them. It's very difficult, though, we don't have a solution of what is a reference standard to use in people who are asymptomatic. So it's mm-hmm. very difficult to do that. I mean, the other issue we have is that they're not so specific, that they actually will create more false positives. And when you start using a test in an asymptomatic population, so for mass screening in a, in a healthcare set, setting, not in a health setting, in a sports setting or in a... Um, business setting or something like that, you'll end up giving more and more people false positive results because less of them will actually have the disease. And, and so we've talked about this. You know, If these tests had a 1% false positive rate, so specificity of 99%, and everybody in the country took them in one week, we'd end up with 600,000 people with false positive results. Um, mm. And that will be a lot of harm. So the moonshot documents and other discussions of this haven't considered this harm that we would see from, from all this testing.
1: Mm. So to make these tests worth it John, I mean how common does the virus need to be?
2: Well this is where we need some help with the modelling to, to look at that. I mean at the moment we're talking our uh, rates of up to about one in a thousand at any point in time and that really is a point where the, the harms of testing everybody uh, yeah. are going to be clearly outweighing the benefits. Um, I imagine that there are some situations we talk about testing in uh, staff in hospitals and in, in care homes uh, and maybe even in schools coming up soon and universities where the, um, the rates are higher. Uh, maybe they're heading up to one in a hundred and so on like that. So it's possible that when we get to those levels um, that the benefits of testing may outweigh the, the harms, but we need to look at it carefully and see.
0: Yeah, that was really interesting, Helen. Uh, It's always good to talk to John about testing. He seems to, well, he is the man who knows everything about it. He does uh, Cochrane reviews and things, so it's all over the evidence. That bit about false positives um, that he was talking about there, obviously at a population level, when you've got 600,000 people in the country being told they've got COVID when they don't, that's an issue. But do you think it'd be as much of an issue at a venue if you were to rock up and they would to say oh sorry it looks like you've got Covid you can't come to this gig I think I would take my chances there and and err on the side of caution would would be all right.
1: Yeah I think it's all going to be about sharing information with people isn't it I think it sounds like the tests are looking maybe quite promising in people with symptoms but as you say in people without symptoms or very very minimal symptoms perhaps having a positive result in particular has consequences for you, doesn't it? I mean, if you're told that you have COVID at a music venue or a sporting event, what are the implications of that? You're gonna have to go into um, isolation until you have a more formal test and trace uh, test done? Or would these tests be enough to say that you might have to isolate for the the full period of time? I think it's gonna be at least in the first instance, if and when these tests come into existence, making sure that people are given good information about the consequences of this is what would happen if you tested positive or negative here today.
0: Mm. And they use these kind of rapid diagnostic tests in medicine all the time, but they usually, uh, I'm thinking for something like HIV testing, if you go in, Um, Mm. and then what it does is it sort of screens and then prompts further yes, testing exactly. if it is a positive to to confirm that so it could be another way of yeah. managing the demand on the on the uh, test and trace system I suppose
1: yes perhaps perhaps I guess we'll have to see how how that evidence um, unfolds it all seemed quite the evidence seemed quite immature at the moment and kind of overlaps with the other thing that I wanted to talk about today around interventions because obviously testing it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens with other things. Do you hear a snuffling? I can sound? hear.
0: This is Carl's replacement.
1: <laughs> Carl's replacement this week is my approximately one-month-old uh, son, who is currently writhing around a little bit. So if you hear any strange, maybe <laughs> snuffling sounds, that's uh, that's Remy. <laughs> well, welcome
0: to the pod, Remy. Uh, I look forward to uh, to hearing your opinions on on testing. These, these are his thoughts.
1: <laughs> but yes, testing testing doesn't happen in a vacuum, it usually happens as part of an intervention to sort of do something, doesn't it, to make a decision and and to move forward and so one thing would happen to you or something else. Um, And something we talked about quite early on um, during an interview with Paul Glazeu on uh, waste in Covid research was this um, disparity between evidence that was being generated around um, vaccines and drugs um, with, with a focus on at least building some high quality evidence and perhaps some other forms of evidence, particularly around um, testing and around um, public health interventions lagging behind. Oh. Um, and that was something that I was quite keen to explore further this week. I think because those are the interventions that are really dominating our lives at the moment. Yeah, I mean, this is um, lockdown,
0: isn't it? That's that's one of these interventions. Yeah, this
1: is kind of masks, lockdown, rules around how many people you can meet, where you can meet them. Um, all, all of that kind of uh, stuff, which is, is really dominating people's lives.
0: Yeah, and the way it's been um, rolled out, you know we've got local lockdowns things are happening in Scotland different from England it seems like a place that we could have actually done some good uh good research but but uh, again that opportunity has been wasted and you know as we said um John was talking about the the wild west of um of testing and it seems like now these new antigen tests and things are are the new frontier in, in that Wild West. And it's really important, must be, um, to make sure that it's all the research is done properly. And, and we think about it in that systemic way that you were just talking about. You know, in that interview, John said that um, it's important to include taking the swab as part of the the PCR test efficacy. So working out all of these things for all of the different tests uh, uh, we're gonna have on the market um, is important, and you mentioned John has actually got a new title. Is that something to do with this?
1: Yeah, it sounds like an opportunity for for the kind of EBM community, and statisticians are a very important part of that, obviously. Um, to to sort of get out there what really matters about the generation of evidence on on tests, um, and John also did share. Plans for some of the work that the Royal Statistical Society um, have underway to, to try and advocate for better evidence around testing?
2: Well, the Royal Statistical Society um, is a little bit um, fed up with seeing the bad use of statistics in talking about tests. And it comes from the evaluation process. So our our UK and EU validation process for tests is very light touch. Um, To get a CE mark, you basically have to show the test isn't going to explode and it does what it says. Uh, It doesn't actually have to work very well. And we've got this confusion, as we've talked about, about analytical and clinical sensitivities and specificities. So our working group is sitting there going through what are the real quantities we need to know about how well a test works and how should they be established. So uh, we're gonna come up with some um, recommendations are coming out with a document which will go through the different types of performance measure that anybody needs to know about a disease. We're focusing on infectious diseases in general, not just on COVID um, and how the study should be designed. So we'll be talking about adequate sample sizes. We'll be talking about making sure we discuss uncertainty how many times do we talk about test accuracy with no confidence intervals being mentioned? Uh, it's quite awful when we still hear about some of our, our, our best established tests when the data is coming from a sample of 28 or 29. Uh, it's not good. So we need to talk about access and transparency to studies um, again we can't find out quite what the studies are. Most of our industry documents we're seeing talk about a study design in two sentences and maybe three on a good day. So there's, there's a lot of room for improvement that we're going to be pointing out in this document in terms of what we actually need to be told to establish whether a test is, um, is fit for purpose.
0: So just then, uh, John was talking about the need for better research into testing. And um, that holistic, uh, non-drug, non-vaccine research is what you talked to Paul Glazier about. Because last time he was on, he was lamenting the the lack of that kind of evidence generation. Yeah, I
1: think, Duncan, the theme of today is kind of... um less flashy evidence, less the the commercial stuff, less of the vaccines and wonder drugs and more of the um, day-to-day mm. stuff that really makes a difference. Remy thinks yes. so too. And... Um, What I wanted to go back and talk with uh, Paul Glasiew about, who's professor of evidence-based medicine at Bond University in Australia and a former GP, was around his advocacy of non-drug interventions in this new initiative um, called BESSI, which he has been working on with others around the world. Paul, thanks so much for joining us again on the show. How has the pandemic been unfolding from your perspective and particularly this perspective of concern about the missed opportunity, not just to learn about drugs, but to learn about non-drug interventions for COVID-19?
3: So the pandemic for Australians has been unfolding with all sorts of twists and surprises like everywhere in the world. I think we never expected the second wave that we've been seeing um, in one state in Australia, that's Victoria. And I think that's illustrative of the sort of chaos and not unpredictability around the world. And I think the thing that has saddened me a lot about that is the failure to have learned to take the opportunity to do the research in each of the waves as we have been doing for drugs, but we haven't been doing that as well for the non-drug interventions, the behavioural, environmental, social, and systems. Expand
1: interventions. on that a bit. What what's the mismatch that you see?
3: So we've been looking at. Um, what research is being done in the pandemic. This arose out of the work that we talked about in a previous podcast on waste in research. And one of the wastes that we talk about is which questions are being addressed by research. So we've looked at that, and clearly billions are going into vaccines. Um, Lots is going into drug research. There are over 1,500 trials registered and about 120 reported of drug interventions for COVID-19. But we've identified just eight studies, uh, randomized trials of the um, inter- non drug interventions, what we call the, B- the BESI or behavioral, environmental, social, or systems interventions. That's a huge mismatch. It's a more than a hundred fold difference. Now, it's I know. Quite that it's quite staggering,
1: really, isn't it?
3: It is. It is really staggering. And working out why that is is a whole extra thing to un- unravel. But I think we just need to promote the idea that this is a big mismatch and we need to fix the problem now. Otherwise, we're going to waste the rest of the pandemic guessing our way through it and not be prepared for a future pandemic, that we won't have taken the opportunity to learn, as we have been for drugs, about how to make the non-drug interventions better.
1: So what helped the, the kind of drug trials get up and underway so fast?
3: Uh, well, it's interesting to look at both the vaccines and the drugs. Um, the vaccines, um, people had been aware that you needed this very strict time frame to be able to develop a vaccine and concern about it had led to CEPI, which I think we had spoken about last time, which is this international collaboration to develop the vaccines. Um, and that's been working fantastically, I think, just as they had planned. Drugs has been a little more chaotic, but there was some planning there. The WHO had set up the solidarity studies, and that, again, had been pre-planned before the pandemic so it could get going. Um, But some of the people involved in that, in particular the Oxford um, Recovery Trial Group, had had previous failures in other pandemics, and they had said, this time we're gonna make sure that we can randomize enough patients. And so the group in Oxford Um, got some funding without a complete protocol, not even all the interventions that they were going to use, all the drug treatments. They wrote the protocol in two days, and nine days later, they had randomised the first patient. Within a month, they had 1,000 patients randomised and 100 centres recruiting. The reason they could do that, and it's a great model to study, is because of failures in the previous pandemics to attempt to do that. In fact, Peter Horby had failed in China as well. The wave was dying out before he could get the necessary recruitment. We need the same sort of thinking as we've done for vaccines and done for drugs now with recovery and solidarity to be occurring for these non-drug interventions. It's months into the pandemic now, and we should have been doing this right at the beginning, but we need to fix the problem now and start putting in that planning in place and have it ready for the next wave or the next pandemic.
1: And what's the work that your group, this this Bessie group, has been doing? How do you how do you plan to move it forwards differently?
3: Well, the first thing we're trying to do is just raise awareness of this mismatch and the need for the research to be done. Um, and we're also lobbying a number of funders, preparing um, submissions to them. Not just for us. What we we don't necessarily want the funding, but what we would like to see is that funding occurs by research funders in multiple countries, that there's a coordinated approach to this that gets the priority questions um, set up and then the research done to answer those priority questions.
1: And what do you see as the the key priorities um, to look at?
3: Those still need to be worked out in detail, but I think you can think in two broad areas, Helen. The Mm -hmm. first is in the the test-trace-isolate system. Um, And the second is in the community transmission. So if we look at the test trace isolate system, we need to ask ourselves, where are the big holes in that? Where is it failing? And we've identified three of them. The first, and probably the most important, is the fact that a lot of people with COVID symptoms don't go along for COVID testing, even though they know they've got it. And we need to, first of all, understand why they don't go along. Is it because they didn't understand what the symptoms were? Is it because they couldn't get to a testing centre because they had to drive two hours? They couldn't take time off work? Or they just didn't think they didn't see the importance of it because they're young and healthy, right? Then we need to design interventions to fix that, to message that. And in fact, the Netherlands has done some interesting work that they got an improvement in their testing processes but it's very little researched. That's the first hole. Second hole is the test turnaround. This is a systems problem, is that you need to have the, um, if you've got more than about three days between when the person asks for a test and when they learn about their test result, then you have failed in your contact tracing. You might have isolated that person, but you haven't isolated the contacts. That needs to happen very rapidly or your whole system breaks down for contact tracing. And so, again, that's a systems problem of designing interventions that can get that the whole turnaround time, not just the testing time, but from present the person requesting a test or wanting a test to then knowing the result and get that to be less than 24 hours or even a couple of hours would be great. And the third hole um, that we've certainly seen in Victoria in Australia is a failure in the quarantine system. In Victoria, a lot of the cases grew out of the people in quarantine because the quarantine wasn't being handled correctly. And we know, in fact, from previous epidemics of of, Ebola and all sorts of things, that people don't obey the quarantine rules. But that there are things that we know what could help them do that. And, in fact, there's an experiment going on in the UK at the moment to look at how much different levels of support could help people um, comply with the quarantining system. So they're the three big holes that I see in the test, trace, isolate Mm. system. What about in
1: transmission?
3: Okay, in the transmission system, I think that's less clear. We need good information on what are the settings. In fact, the majority of cases appear to be household transmission. So what could we do to reduce that? But then we need a breakdown. We often hear about exciting settings like, you know, the church choir um, or a a particular um, airplane or restaurant or something. But actually we need to know what are the most frequent settings in which transmissions have occurred and then work out what you could do to um, improve that setting. Is it a restructuring of the setting? For example, having petitions between people or making sure that you've got a limited number of people with proper social distancing, or changing the ventilation. Maybe if we could open the windows six inches or change the ventilation. So they're the sort of holes and the priorities that we need within the community transmission system. But we want to work out the ones that would be the most effective while being the least disruptive. So sure, you can put the whole population into quarantine effectively, which is what the severe end of lockdown is. But what we'd like to do is find, well, could we do just a little bit less than that? Maybe not as little as Sweden, but actually Sweden was doing some interesting things to see what are the sort of the best um, value for effort, if you like, for each of the interventions. But without knowing how effective each of them is, it's impossible to know what that trade-off is.
1: Mm. And that must make it very difficult for for governments around the world now who are predominantly implementing um, behavioural or environmental um, controls for their populations to know which elements have worked and what they should continue with or how they should adapt them.
3: Yes, you're right, Helen. And which segments of the population to target as well. You may be applying a, uh, something to the entire population when, in fact, if you identified the settings and people with, with, the, with the major problem, you could target your interventions better. Mm-hmm. By giving them appropriate support, and it may be giving people more time off off, um, off from work when they're sick, for example, or um, paying for the restructuring of um, some buildings, for example. But without knowing exactly what the right things to do are, we use this um, sledgehammer to crack the nut at the moment. <laughs> we need more, more delicate things that we need the research to tell us which are the, which are the right places to tap.
1: It's been interesting down down in the southern hemisphere where you are, Paul, this observation that not only might these measures help with coronavirus and COVID-19, but they might also help with other common seasonal infective diseases, because we've heard that flu has been lower than usual. um, And perhaps it is some of these these busy interventions that have been in part responsible for that.
3: Yes, yes. In fact, this is part of the, um, the um, Cochrane A- acute respiratory infection work that I've been involved in um, here at Bond, which is part of the Cochrane um, collaboration. It is studying the physical barriers or behavioural ways of dealing with the flu in addition to vaccination. Vaccination is, we know for flu, is an imperfect thing. Um, it, it's, it, it's certainly, it's far from 100% effective. Um, And that may happen with the coronavirus as well, that it may be an imperfect vaccine. And so we need to understand how to use those physical or um, behavioural interventions to better control things. And as you say, that's actually been effective for the flu, but it's been taking that sledgehammer has worked very well for the flu. We want (laughs) to find the, the smaller places to tap. Could we just, you know... Not get people to go into crowded places if they have any respiratory symptoms at all might be the one key measure. I'm guessing here we need the research to know whether my guess is right.
1: Mm. Paul, it sounds like from the research that you're describing, there might be a real mixture. So this isn't just about organising trials, but there might be quite a bit of descriptive research explaining what's been going on. You've described aspects around the acceptability of interventions, which I guess might lead to work on um, qualitative research or understanding people's values and preferences of the population and individuals differently. Um, how broad do you see this as a research area?
3: Oh, Helen, I think it's very broad. So the, the scorecard that we have on the BESSI website about the trials is just the tip of the iceberg. That We we certainly need a broad range of things, and you're right, that would include interviews with people about why they're not adhering to quarantine or why they didn't get tested, surveys of people, self-report but actually observed behaviour would be very important as well. And as I said earlier in this, one of the key pieces for me would be to know what settings the most case transmission has occurred in. A few places actually report that quite well, like Louisiana and the San Diego County have a nice breakdown of that. But often all we get is these single case reports from different jurisdictions, and we actually need a collaboration between the the public health officers um, all around the globe to compile that sort of information together. But they have been so overwhelmed with dealing with the pandemic, my understanding from talking to them is they haven't had much time to think about what research needs to be done to prevent a second wave or a third wave or finish this pandemic and prepare for the next one as well. So all of that range of research needs to be done, but it needs to include those intervention studies, including some trials, certainly more than eight. Another good chat there, Helen.
0: It was really interesting talking to him about the way um, evidence is is being used in those wider public health intervention-y ways that we talked about at the beginning there. And it's almost like right back at the beginning of um, evidence-based medicine, you know, before trials were done on, on treatments, people would just go with what they felt was the best way of doing things. And that seems like the status quo um, at the moment uh, in government.
1: Mm, I think Paul, um, well, we had a sneaky chat for a bit longer than we recorded for, but I think he made one point, which I think is so key for EBM, this, this thing that we do innately have theories as people or hypotheses as they're called. And so although this is a broad research agenda, on one hand, and it's important to do a range of studies, we did talk about how important doing trials of these interventions are. Um, and, and Paul gave the example of how even within drugs, doing the drug trials has helped us avoid some pitfalls mm. already um, because people thought that hydroxychloroquine might work and there was some mechanistic evidence behind that, but it hasn't so far. Um, and conversely, people didn't think necessarily that steroids would be very good. There's quite a bit of anxiety around using those. But it turns out that they have been quite good for people with severe infections. So I think as well as just doing things and doing some before and after work or comparing different countries, doing the trials um, is a key a key feature. Yeah,
0: definitely. And some of the things he was talking about you know um the reasons why people might not get a test even despite having symptoms or not isolating having got a uh, a good test it seems like that's not going to be something that you can look at in a trial so this is going to require a, a huge range of different kinds of of research to to really answer but i
1: think it shows how important it is to look at the the interventions as they are because i mean we were talking with john about the tests And the test is only one element of what effectively is the test and trace system, which is kind of a complex intervention, isn't it? Where you're asking people not just to take a test, but to uh, um, isolate themselves, um, to then take the test, which is quite tricky and unpleasant to do, and then to stay away from other people until they get the test result. Um, And as Paul was saying in that interview, there's then the fact that You need that result to be fast in order to contact trace people, but you also need that test to be fast in order to keep people on board um, with actually remaining in isolation. They need an answer quickly. So I think you begin to see how, in a way, some of the research around the drugs and vaccines is quite straightforward um, and quite straightforward to design studies for. But these messy life things where humans are making their own decisions about going going about their daily business as well um, just requires such careful yeah, thought. And
0: it's going to have implications way beyond COVID sort of really delving into some of these things. Um, Paul mentioned in that uh, interview a little bit about flu and actually in one of our other podcasts, uh, Deep Breath In, a little plug there, we talked to uh, someone from New Zealand and they'd said they only had 12 laboratory confirmed cases of flu in their entire flu season all due to Mm. to these kind of interventions going in and it does make me think wow if we could take the the pressure of respiratory diseases off uh the nhs in some way you know it's really worth looking into this much more broadly
1: yeah and i think society would be quite behind i mean setting aside the kind of um winter pressures on the nhs um kind of winter misery that you get in your own life either as a an adult or or in my situation as a a parent of young children I mean your winter is so dominated Mm. by these sort of self-limiting viral infections that if there are measures such as enhanced hand washing or some of the um, distancing that's been happening in schools and things like that that you can do to mean that you're less ill over the winter period I think the public would be very interested in that and it's I hope that that's the kind of momentum that Paul and those working in the Bessie initiative can kind of capitalise on to make people understand that doing this type of research um, is really important and can make a big difference to their yeah, lives.
0: Definitely. I mean, you would have thought that... Uh not catching norovirus would be enough to uh, encourage people to wash their hands. but That is good motivation. <laughs> yeah. But obviously that hasn't <laughs> quite worked. So um, it'll be really interesting to to see from Paul at least the shape of, of some of this. And as you said, uh, like John, maybe it's a, a chance to get him or, or some of his collaborators back on Talk Evidence in the future. On that, I think we've come to the end of the show this week uh helen thank you very much for stepping in and uh giving us some of that information in carl's absence i mentioned deep breath in and uh that like all of our other podcasts are available on apple podcasts or spotify or pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from so if you're interested in more about medicine check some of those out Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight or so uh, with more on coronavirus. So uh, until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.
0: Take care out there.